Welcome to Frontline. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Frontline Podcast. My name is David Gill. And I'm Andrew James. And in this episode, we will be discussing the world of well-being at work. We also have a special guest that will be talking some depth about this as well. So, Andrew, how are you feeling after episode one came out? Both confessed, a little nervous to see how it gets received. But other than that, yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, fantastic. It's very real now, isn't it? So let's get started then. So well-being, particularly when we're talking about well-being at work. Uh, What's this mean to you then, Andrew? What's your thoughts on this? Well, for me, well-being at work really is mostly just about how to ensure that you are mentally protected and secure and uh, emotionally supported at your work. Because in industries that are in health or homelessness or in drug work, whichever sector, it's quite weighty subjects that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So it's to make sure that you are protected and you're at your optimal level so you can perform your job to the best of your abilities, but also make sure that you know, you're not taking this home with you to add to additional pressures. Which I guess is one of the reasons why we're discussing it now. You mentioned about taking it home. I think one of the challenges that we see in this current climate is that a lot of people are working from home. So you're not really taking anything with you because it's already there. It's already on site. And one of the issues I think I'm seeing uh, for a lot of people is, is they're working from home and doing a lot of their client contact via maybe telephone or maybe even video call, I guess, like we're doing right now. Mm. And not having your colleagues sat next to you can be such a huge challenge, I guess. When people first thought about working from home, they saw the benefits, which, and let's be honest, there are plenty of benefits. When we talk about well-being, we, we must discuss it. But also the challenges of having to deal with a lot of stuff and not having necessarily your team around you or that environment, or even just leaving the work environment to travel home, whether it's a walk, a bus ride, a car, train, tube, whatever it may be, to almost mm. uh, unwind from the day. I think that's one of the most important parts of this as well, it, that little separation. Like I remember when the pandemic first started, for example, I was still going into work, key worker and all that, and I was getting the bus to and from my place of work. My partner was working from home still. And yes, you know, there's the, the differences in getting out and getting to the um, office. At this time, it was only me and one other person in two separate offices, so we didn't actually see each other. So ultimately, our days were the same, me and my partners, in that we didn't see anyone else particularly. But I had this 45-minute break um, going there and coming back of a little bit of time just to prepare myself for it going in and unwind on the return. And it, it did make a huge difference from the two of us. I think it, yeah, I think I benefited a lot from that. Unfortunately, she didn't have that. Which I, I guess it's an, an interesting point because what you've described there, I, I, I get it, you know, that having that break and that commute. I guess for some people that could have been something that would be detrimental to their well-being. You know that. Let's let's be honest. I know we we don't really like to revisit it, but it's because I mean it's two two and a half years ago now. It sounds remarkable, doesn't it, when you think of it like that? Yeah. Where we are filming here at the end of 2022. 
But in those early days, in that first lockdown, the fear of going out and getting on public transport and going on places, I, I guess, could that also have maybe undone some of the well-being for you getting out and about because of the fear of I've got to wear a mask, I'm going on this plate, what can I get? We don't really know much about this. If this is one of those situations where I think the individual needs to be taken into account, I think for different people in different circumstances, yes, that absolutely could have been the case. In my particular circumstances, a week prior to the actual lockdown being announced, I caught what was never fully confirmed to be, but all intents and purposes very much seemed like COVID because we weren't able to go through a drive-through testing site, obviously, because we were quite ill. So we were ill for the week before it was set as lockdown and the week after. So by the time I'd recovered sufficiently enough to be able to leave the house, I think I'd had had cabin fever to such an extent that I just wanted to get out. Mm. So in different circumstances, yeah, I would have absolutely been more concerned. But in that situation, I think I'd, I just needed a bit of outdoor space. That's why I think what you mentioned there is context is so key. The fact that you let's face it, pretty much had it. Like, you know, we, yeah. we can't say for sure, but it sounds like with everything happening at that time, mm-hmm. and particularly, you know, based in an area where it was, you know, it hit, you know, you are based in London, I'm based up here in the north, it, it hit down there first. It, it was really probably did. what it was. I guess having that, almost that feeling of, well, I've had this, or I can go out, I can do this. I, it's not to say that you, you were like cavalier about it, just going off and not caring, but it also would just put you at ease a little bit, I guess, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I think I think that is um, definitely part of it. It was that kind of not so much, you know, I've had it once, so how bad can it be? But at the same time, it was the okay. So as long as I can abide by the rules and regulations, I should be as protected as I can be, whilst also you know helping my brain get a little bit less cluttered. I was the opposite of you. I was just like your partner. I I couldn't go anywhere. I was locked at home. And I, I, everything in my work life was an online, a video call, telephone call, or just desk-based tasks. And I remember that when I first physically went somewhere for work again, it was a, it was a strange experience. And I guess before we talk about that, I, I think it's probably worth asking you about how it felt to, to have that experience during the pandemic and then when the world started opening up again, how, how that impacted on you. And did you see any difference in terms of your well-being at all? The main thing I did notice, this is it's something you did raise, I guess, a little bit before when you mentioned the um, feeling a little, a little bit of anxiousness and cautiousness of going out again. I did notice as things slowly started to open up, the increase in uh, people on the buses, for example. The first time someone sat next to me was quite a cause of uh, quite a lot of internal angst. And plus, well, I, I was getting the bus. It was gen- before before COVID, it was... Standing room only, absolutely jam-packed. As soon as it hit and lockdown came, including the driver, you might be one of three people on it. So then after a couple of months when it started to, you know, every other seat filled, it it did start to feel a little bit less comfortable. (laughs) People do seem to have returned and I'm not, I don't, I'm reluctant to use the word complacent, but there is definitely a, perhaps an, a, a little bit of a, a mental exhaustion of the whole thing that people are, people are a lot more eager to get back into the office. In my experience, not always full time. People are still having um, work from home days in the week and enjoying those days. But yeah, there the, the certainly isn't the, um, 
the 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 concern or anxiety around being in work mm. as the would have been perhaps twelve months ago, which which I think is is a good thing because returning to work it's it's remarkable how many people are wanting to do that again I, i'm not necessarily saying full time so i think mm. one of the benefits from this whole experience which has been terrible in so many ways but i guess if you can look at any benefits you might as well explore it and one of the benefits has been this hybrid working as you say a couple of days in the office a couple of days working from home fantastic it helps with our work-life balance as much as it does with our, our employers as well but I, th- I think the challenge of that is understanding what the impact has been and what the impact continues to be for people. Because I guess with the work that I do, the amount of teams I've worked with, that I've seen a huge shift in the last year or so where I, I think people were just wanting to get a bit of normality back and had just kind of plowed through and just and did what they need to be doing. And I think it's it's worth talking about that because, like yourself, you went through this. You know, it wasn't just the NHS. There were so many other people in the fields or the fields that we work within that just went out and just did what they needed to be doing, which is remarkable. And I think in the last year, we've seen people go back. And I think what I'm starting to see now is the impact of all that frustration, that fear, that just getting on with it spirit is now kind of, hit a point where I think people are just really, really starting to struggle. And I, let's be honest as well, where we are at this point uh, in our society, we have the cost of living crisis, the energy bills are shooting up. It's not like we've come out of the pandemic into easy times. We're going into further challenging times. Adding that, the fact, and I think it's something we'll probably touch upon in a bit, the increase in things like um, uh, staff sickness, long-term staff sickness in particular, and also just, let's be honest, in this field, high staff turnover of just people deciding this job is bloody hard work. I, I don't see why I should do this anymore. I don't understand why I should still do this because my health is suffering that much. And when I see people like that, I might, my heart goes out to them because you can say, see that they have passion about this. They still want to go and do these sort of jobs, but their body is telling them, I need a break, I need a rest. I think you're absolutely right. Um, desperately sad to see as well. I mean, I'll, I'll just mention this just before we get onto the discussion more in depth. I'm sure we've both been in situations and so as anyone listening may be able to relate to it when you've, you've seen a colleague who is really conscientious, really hardworking, to their own to their detriment so much that they've you can see them working themselves to sickness though the last period just before it falls and they have to go off when you can see it written all over them and you off you can offer the help but generally it's rebuffed as something they'll work past or get through until unfortunately there's nothing left to give and it is a desperately desperately sad thing to see I don't want people to to think that we're just going to be talking about the negatives here. Because I think, you know, one of the things that our aim of today's episode is is to really explore what we can do. Because I think if you can find ways to look after yourself during these very difficult times, when, touch wood, things get a little bit easier, get things get a little bit more calm and, and relaxed for people, that what we learn during the bad times can help us flourish during the good times as well. So I think it's, you know, the main thing about today is really thinking about the balance But before we do that, we have to explore some of the challenges that come with this. And for me, one of the things I talk about quite a lot, and apologies for anyone listening, if you've met me face to face, you'll probably heard me talk about this subject, but it's the subject of of what we call vicarious trauma. And if you are new to vicarious trauma, it just basically means that 
as human beings, particularly people who work in this field, just, you know, let's not tell anyone here, by the way, people listening, but it means you're good people if you work in this field and you're listening to this podcast. But it also means you have a high level of empathy, which means you become susceptible to this this concept of vicarious trauma, where it basically means you spend your day listening to people. And even if you're doing a range of different jobs, you know, you might be working criminal justice in probation, you might be a drugs worker, you might be a housing worker, an outreach worker, mental health nurse. You're doing all these different things. You're ticking the boxes, you're filming forms in, you're engaging, you're supporting, you're helping. But we're still absorbing people's stories day in, day out. And the time there are going to be times when people's stories are of trauma, whether it's current situations or past situations. And when we empathize with an individual, we leave, leave our emotional doors wide open and it comes flooding back the other way and we absorb it. And we can't switch this off because it means we wouldn't be able to do the jobs that we do. Until fairly recently, this has been identified or seen in other ways, you know, just seen as a competency or conduct issue or someone just can't hack it or not good at their job. Um, which some younger listeners might be listening to thinking, no, surely not. But when I started in this field, it was, you've got to be tough or else you can't hack it. And I think what we realize, sorry, should I say about vicarious trauma is that it's very real as a concept, but if it's not identified as such, it gets missed. If we're not supporting each other, it gets missed. If we're not putting ourselves first, because we're always putting other people first, it gets missed. And the long-term impact of this vicarious trauma is this sits on our head, often subconsciously. So we don't really know it's affecting us. And what tends to happen is, is that it will then come flooding out in our work environment. But also, and I think this is why it's so important that we talk about, and I often work with people in organizations about HR procedures as well. It comes flooding out in your home life as well. So it just doesn't just impact on you professionally, but it can have such an impact on you um, personally as well. So it's a, such a huge area of vicarious trauma. It's a very, very real and very serious issue that it, until, as you say, until recent years really wasn't recognised and talked about enough. I've always seen it as though everyone is kind of like a sponge or, or a bath mat, for example. And through, their, through experience, you will absorb every time you have experiences, whether they be good or bad in home life or work life. And if you are in a job or in a field like ourselves where the potential vicarious trauma is so much higher then the more you absorb or the potential to absorb more is there it's having the opportunities for release or the opportunities to get some of this out is the most important thing and that my point as well is that it's not just the work as well it's what what you, you can absorb this at home and they will as you've said before there is a complete cross-pollination so the more that you suffer here will also affect you in the other area too so it's being being aware of your limits and the stress that you are under and knowing when it requires addressing the issue with with, with vicarious trauma as well is is that it opens up everything else that's always been there so if we, if we talk about vicarious trauma it isn't a new thing but the concept is relatively new for a lot of people there might be people listening to this that have never come across this before. Good. Take it away. Talk about it. Google it. Recognize it. It's a, it's a real thing. But it also links into other aspects as well of just burnout, just a simple burnout. Because the thing is, vicarious trauma is unique to this field, you know, working with people, absorbing that trauma. But general burnout can happen in any field. And adding to that, all the fact, all the challenges that we already have in this field, you know, chronically undervalued, underpaid and just doing what we can to keep our, our heads above water. 
throw into that all the challenges we said at the beginning about high levels of sickness and high levels of staff turnover. You are getting people now, and I've heard this so much recently, it's, it's terrifying. You hear people say, oh, we're meant to be a team of eight, and we're currently operating at three. Uh, we were meant to have a line manager, but they've been off sick for six months. So we've just kind of been looking after ourselves and we're just figuring our way out through this. We're just doing what we need to do to survive. And I've already seen, like I said, drop off since the pandemic. I, I can't I can't see how we can afford to have another drop off. I mean, wh- where else do we go? Well, yeah, it's I guess it's linked to what I said before. Everyone has a finite limit of what they can handle. We, we've had we've been through the pandemic but even before that stress levels were and sickness levels were quite high covid has just added an extra layer on top of that with the the stress that people are under just surviving day to day but also you know if, if anyone god forbid was uh, unlucky enough to catch the virus and then suffer long covid which is has taken out a few people I'm, i know just worn them down to the point where they can still work but not as regularly as they used to, not as many days as they used to, and it's a an, an ongoing long-term problem for them. But all this adds to the, the, the levels that people have, and you can only, as I say, you can only absorb so much before it really starts to to spill out and, and seriously impact your working life and your life in general. With what we were talking about a bit ago about the home working as well, there's so many reasons, you know, pros and cons why people are working from home and like I say this hybrid working does benefit a lot of people but what do you think of the impact on staff in terms of the burnout of vicarious trauma when you are working from home quite a lot I'm thinking let's just think of a a, a case study of an individual who maybe is in the office once a week but the other four days they may be doing telephone contacts video calls with maybe complex needs individuals and they're absorbing it they're working from home, might have kids running around because, you know, it's been the school holidays, they're absorbing all this stuff. What do you think is the impact on that individual then? I try to view it in the positive and negatives, but certainly the negatives there in my mind would be, first of all, especially if you're dealing with cases of quite complex needs, being on your own in a working practice or not being directly in the office with someone you could just bounce conversation ideas off with. That is a a tool I would use almost a daily basis. Even if I often get accused of this as well, even if you know the answer, just bouncing it off someone else, just to confirm what you believe, you know, is it's a very supportive, very positive thing that in general interaction and just to confirm your knowledge is, is very important. And you lose that or at least the opportunity for it in those situations. There's the, as we talked about, the the general isolation part of it. But one point that I always noticed from a personal point of view, when I was working from home for extended periods, especially early on in the pandemic, was an additional pressure I was putting on myself. Because I wasn't in the office, I felt an extra need to justify what I was doing, forcing myself to do more and more and more and it was really really unhealthy and that's I'm, I'm so glad you brought that point up because this is something i'm i'm seeing with with all the teams i'm working at at the minute it, it, not all the teams, but quite a lot a worrying amount particularly when working from home there's this it, it's, it's like this fear you're absolutely right this fear of i'm not doing enough or i should be working harder or or even something like um say your working hours are let's just go for a standard nine to five and you would classically leave the house maybe eight o'clock, walk somewhere, get a bus, get into work, nice leisurely morning, 
leave at five, be home for like quad six or something like that. What I'm finding is people will like hit the eight o'clock in the morning and log on. And there's no gradual walk up, get the bus, get the train, drive in your car, listen to some music, a good podcast. The idea is that you, you just press your on button on your laptop and your emails boot up and there you are, you're in it. That's eight in the morning. And then you think, well, I'm here now, I might as well. And then five o'clock hits. And someone mentioned this the other day and they said um, they've got down the art form of starting cooking their tea whilst still like finishing off the emails because five o'clock's hit. So they've they've done everything they need to do, but they're like, well, might as well just finish off a few emails I'm cooking. So I can just have an image of them, like arms spread out in the kitchen, one arm this way, you know, just trying to finish off an email and the other arm just staring the tea or something. It's that situation of, I feel like I'm not justifying it. I feel like I'm going to be called out. I, I remember a few weeks ago, just having this discussion with the team and just talk about um, hanging the washing out anxiety of, I'm just, you know, I've got 10 minutes. I'll go and hang the washing out. And people are like, oh, I'm just worried my boss is just going to jump over the fence and say, what are you doing? You know, it's just all these, these fears that I know we can laugh about them now, but they, you can see how real it makes for that person. And I think no matter how hard we work in the office, we all know the benefits of just coming in. And if you're having one of those days, of just turn to your mate and just say, I'm just having one of those days. And just having a coffee with them or even say, did you watch the game last night? Or, or did you catch that thing on TV? Just having that human contact. Sometimes you don't need to say, I've had a really terrible session and I think I've absorbed some vicarious trauma. Sometimes you just need to say, I'm having a difficult time. Would you have a cup of tea and a biscuit with me? That's sometimes what we need. But working from home and that fear, as you say, is just creeping into people. And I I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem to be changing. That fear still seems to be there. I don't think it's possible to change it fully. I think it's the strange disconnect of being with your work materials but being in a much more familiar and what's supposed to be your comfort setting at home and it's a confusing scenario but also the fact that you do as as you mentioned before you convince yourself that if like for example you hang the washing or just do whatever it may be you're bound to miss that one time where the, the big manager will give you a call and then you've missed it and then they'll be like well, he's obviously doing nothing, and then you're going to end up getting sacked. It's, but that it is like you said, we can laugh about it now. But that never really leaves you. It reduces. It does reduce, but it never really leaves you. It's one of those things that when you're talking about it, it just sounds so trivial and silly. But when you're in the situation, you feel it's very, very real. Like a lot of these things, when you peel it away, the challenge with this is a cultural thing. The COVID situation has pushed us into a different environment that we were probably headed towards anyway, but it's it hit the fast forward button. We've probably got to this point of, again, what we're using now, video call as normal and work from home has, has happened a lot quicker than perhaps it would have done in a non-pandemic era. And I think the culture side of us is still struggling to catch up to it. You know, we're still thinking... Work is turn up, sit to your desk, do what you need to do and be very visible, show that I'm doing something. Suddenly you're working from home on your dining room table, typing away on a laptop and you're thinking, am I doing enough? Is this right? Am I, am I missing something? Should I be doing something else? All of those intrusive thoughts can just get the better of us. There's one thing that you know, former employees that I've, I've worked with and for in the past, I've always tried to encourage when you're in the office and, and, and hopefully there'll be someone listening who's familiar with this. You know, every, every couple of hours you're working at your workstation, 
just get up just stretch your legs for five minutes just just get away from your desk just just for a bit more of a, a healthier well it's, it's, it's a work-life balance it's a lifestyle thing just to make sure that you know you rest your eyes you, you make sure you you're healthy but when you're at home be honest who does that not not too many people but at home it's just not an option in in your mind it's not an option when we're talking about cultures the stuff that we should do you know you, you talk about absolutely getting up away from your desk particularly if you've got one of those admin days where you've just got a million things to write up on the computer a million emails to send it's it can be draining staring at the screen typing away and we know in our heads we know i need to get up i need to do it but we also think i'm busy i need to get this done do i do this and think i can maybe feel must feel better but then am i walking around getting anxious because of all the work i am not doing it's again it's that cultural side of things and i think when we talk about this i always ask people about things like lunch breaks. I always say to people, do you actually take your lunch break? Because if you look at most people's contracts who work for, again, criminal justice, public sector, third sector, you look in your contracts, your lunch breaks are usually not paid for. You know, you look at your working hours, the lunch break is just your time. But so many people either don't realize that or choose to just ignore it or just think I I can't afford to take it. And what we end up doing is we're working for free. And if you talk about just half an hour a day, that's two and a half hours free we are working. We are volunteering without even realizing, which, what, 10 hours a month, 120 hours a year, where we are just kind of basically volunteering for our own employer because we just think, I am too busy to have a lunch break. Or I hear people say, I do take a lunch break. And what they mean is they type one-handed emails while shoveling a sandwich as quick as possible in their mouth. This word of culture really does play a part in this. And I think we're at this, for me, it feels like we're a bit of a tipping point where we've really got to start thinking about our well-being. Yes, we need uh, our, our managers, we need our industry, we need the whole working cultures to back us up. But I think we also have to, to sit there and think, what can I do for myself? I've got to put myself first in this. Compassion begins with yourself. Yeah, and I think that this feeds into what we talked about earlier, a little bit about um, high staff turnover and sickness levels, is that there are so many pressures on people at home and at work, and that does unfortunately cause high levels of sickness and burnout, as we were saying. Um, obviously, everyone's everyone has different lives everyone has different pressures that they experience and that's for for them to deal with their personal home life but when it comes to work there are certain hopes and needs to implement in order to ensure staff are retained as much as possible it brings us and and this is just the reality of where we are and i think it makes me think about the industry that we are working in you know whether it's public sector whether it's third sector charities, you know, we we are in an industry that isn't necessarily known for its money. You know, we let's let's talk about the big elephant in the room when we're talking about well-being and work. So many other industries, particularly in the private sector, there are things like bonuses, or you know, you 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 work there a particular time and you earn certain increments, which for various different reasons don't always happen in this this world we're in. But what could sound like I'm going on a bit of a negative spiral here. Actually, one of the things that I'm most proud about this sector is the quality of the work that people produce when we know that there isn't those, those monetary incentives. You know, people do this job because they care. They do it for a reason. And I think even though during tough times like this, what's really heartening to see 
is fantastic practice. You see people roll their sleeves up and say, yes, it's tough. Yes, it's difficult. And I'm not going to lie that this stuff isn't getting to me, but I'm going to get my head down and do what I can. That's what we've got to remember here. Despite all of the situation we're in, I think it's vital we talk about it because that is the situation we're in. There is a lot of good practice going on out there. Yes, it's one thing that we've been off camera is um, innovations when it comes down to work around management supervision and how how managers work directly with the staff in order to, whether it's um, boost morale, ensure full proper training is given, ensure at, at the very least the proper equipment is in place to do the job that, they, that, that someone's paid to do. And one of the uh, best things that have could be said is uh, something like re- reflective practice for example so yeah so this this is uh, something that we are seeing as really good practice and it's again it's really positive to see that in some places particularly commission services it's part of their spec that they are commissioned to not only um, deliver services to support their staff but to provide an element of reflective practice to make sure that um, staff well-being is is maintained but also not just them but well-being but their their skill set is as high as it can possibly be because again you know we were talking about a, an industry that's potentially losing a lot of talent we want to hold that talent in as much as we can uh, and I guess if, if you're unfamiliar with reflective practice for me it falls into two categories there's the informal stuff which I think we've already started covering, you know, that sitting down with your mates, having a cup of tea in that work environment and just saying, I'm having one of those days. Can I just talk about it? Can we open up and have that conversation and, and not bottle it up and feel that I've got to be tough. I can't deal with this. But to supplement that informal work practice, what we start to see is, is services are, are embedding reflective practice sessions, actually having time where staff in whole teams and smaller teams are getting together and are bringing so if, if you're a case worker bringing cases to the situation or if you an outreach worker situations that you've been in uh if you work in a i, I don't know in a day center or something situations a supported accommodation a resident you've been working with the idea is you have this safe environment where everyone brings an issue. It doesn't always have to be client-based. It could just be, you know, working practice challenges with um, an, a partnership agency. And the idea is you sit with your colleagues, protected time. You're not there running around thinking, I've got a million emails to answer. I've got all this other stuff that I need to be doing. You're just there and you have your time with your colleagues and you talk through the process. And if, if anyone wonders how you kind of stay on task, because again, this is really important that we do because the danger with the reflective practice if we don't stay on task i will say it becomes a moan and a groan session where you just everyone sits and talks about oh this is happening my boss is not doing this or my colleagues are all doing that and so i always advise people to use a model and one of the best models it's it's brilliant and it's simple which is the gibbs reflective cycle and the idea with that is you just work through your situation you talk about what happened how you felt your main learning from it and then you encourage your colleagues to come in and jump in and share and identify and and sometimes as you say and Andrew earlier on you sometimes know the answers you just need it reinforced or you just need it out loud or you just need he need your colleagues to say what you're doing you're doing a good job you know you don't need to do anything different you're just doing a good job sometimes we overanalyze and we think I'm doing something wrong or I'm not doing it right and sometimes just having that 
that culture and this it and it's called a cycle for a reason because the idea is you you work through it and then if you say bring it back the following week or the following month you know if you want to talk about it again you can talk about what you learned I always describe it as it's it's like a muscle in your brain reflection and the more you do it the better it become and over time you you can develop something called rather than just reflective practice something called reflexive practice where you find yourself reflecting in action when you're actually dealing with situations like an aggressive incident or a difficult situation your brain is already almost plotting out these paths in your head where you think right if i do this action I'll, this will happen if i do that it'll... it's just enhancing our emotional intelligence usually when a, a situation our emotions could get the better of us so as you can hear i am very much behind this as a model i just think it retains staff sickness drops it creates an environment where you can talk about and verbalize vicarious trauma as a concept and it naturally just starts to alleviate some of these pressures some of the challenges you hear people, whether it's managers or staff, say we don't have time for an hour a week or an hour every two weeks. Again, I will say if it's something's important, you find the time for this and it is beneficial. And, you know, purely from a business point of view as well, retaining staff, skilling your staff up for an hour a week or an hour every two weeks. I don't think it's a huge pay. I don't think it's a, a, a huge issue that I think the payoff you get from it is, is huge and worth exploring. The times when I've felt most under pressure and had the most difficult times at work yes i've been in situations where i've been in teams that have been understaffed but that's not never been the main issue for me the main issue the main issues for me have come up when i've felt underskilled mm. and that may not have actually have been the case but having the sense of being underskilled or the fear that you are underskilled is just as bad if not often worse than just being underskilled uh, because it, it it's the fear then that can eat away at you, completely undermine your confidence and completely destroy your practice. Whereas in sessions like this, the opportunity to discuss things, question things that you aren't quite certain of, finding uh, smarter solutions to things that you already know the right process too but there may be people who've had more experience who know the smarter solutions who know the i'm, I'm loath to use the word the skills or shortcuts because it's not that quite that cut and dry but that there are different pathways to get to the same result yeah. and they may know ones that are slightly smarter and you know get, get to the end result that little bit quicker than what what you're used to and it's knowing that and being able to do that and put that into practice that really does build confidence and keeps people like well myself certainly are a more secure footing at work yeah I, I absolutely i completely agree and and i often say this to organizations that i work with it's almost like thinking about how we work with the people we work with and putting a mirror up to that with how we should be because we often talk about whatever job it is if you're working with humans at the end of the day we know fundamentally whatever our jobs are whether you are probation police officer whether it's uh, working in the nhs drugs worker whatever it may be strip everything away the bottom line is relationships have to be built if you cannot build a relationship with that person in front of you there's no point so if we spend our days recognizing that we need to hold that mirror up to ourselves and recognize everything is about the relationships with ourselves with our teams with everything that we do and as you're talking about there that 
it's not necessarily your situation. You're absolutely right. The vast majority of those times won't be because you don't have the skills. It's because of the other stuff. And that's how it manifests itself as you feeling like, can't do this. I don't have the skills to do it. And I'm again, I can imagine everyone listening to this. So many people, I, I know I've recognized that so many times that imposter syndrome, I'm not good at this. I am going to be found out. But creating a culture where we reflect, we hold that mirror up and we recognize it's relationship building. And those relationships are with our colleagues, are with the people around us for us to sit down. And, and again, the other advantage of this is that we spend so much time with our our team members again might not be as much as we used to because of this hybrid working but we do we spend so much time with them we've got to find a way to build those relationships up we've got to find a way to feel like a team some people we work with we become great friends with others we just don't connect on a personal level but we still need to find that professional relationship and for me a culture of reflection a culture of that reflective practice benefits us I think at this point it's worth bringing our guest in. So we're going to hand over to our guest now that will go into a lot more detail about how we should consider uh, well-being at work and in particular, how much we should consider our own well-being. Hello and welcome to this week's guest. Shall we start with who are you and where are you from? Hi, my name is Dr. Lisa Keegan. I am a clinical psychologist, um, EMDR practitioner and a systemic practitioner. And I'm from Small Steps to Wellbeing. So this week's episode is all about wellbeing. So from your perspective as a clinical psychologist, why do you think this is so important in the current climate? Wellbeing is incredibly important in the current climate. We see it around us all the time at the moment, talks about depression and anxiety being raised. And I think such systemic factors such as the heating crisis, um, potentially we're looming on another recession. Other things, factors such as I'm very aware um, that the Queen's death has just occurred. All of these factors have a huge impact on our well-being, particularly our mental health and how we feel about ourselves. I guess as well, from my perspective, rather than thinking about well-being, I really like to think about it more as self-compassion and how we care for ourselves and look after ourselves, because often those are the first things that we start to neglect when things start to overwhelm us, when those pressures of bills are starting to mount looking after ourselves often comes last in the list of things such as family friends work those around us and it's very if you go back to being on an airplane they always talk about in cases of emergency you need to put your own um oxygen mask on first and that's sim- that's very simple but it's true and in today's common climate if we can't look after ourselves how do we look after other people for people listening then what would you advise them to look out for what do you think are the biggest areas of concern i think what i'd 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 invite people to do is i'd invite them to think about their well-being as in on a scale of one to ten with one being not at all and ten being incredibly important whereabouts do you put your own self-care on that scale at the moment think about how do you value it what does it mean to you because i think if we if we're putting that rather low I think it's starting to tell us something about that 
also it's really useful just to kind of think about what's going on in our heads what do we feel in our bodies what are those self-critical thoughts those those thoughts that come into your head throughout the day are there things telling you about we need to do this I should have done that I should be there those what might be termed as cognitive distortions such as catastrophizing um seeing things very black and whitely what I tend to find and associate with that is the more we are experiencing those sorts of thoughts the more we're experiencing stress in our bodies such as tightness in our shoulders butterflies in our stomach and then combine that with um feeling very tired, overwhelmed, anxiety. What we're starting to notice there is that your well-being is probably very low on that scale. You're not looking after yourself. Therefore, if you're not putting your well-being as kind of a high priority on that scale, that's something to be looking at. And why am I doing that? What is more important at the moment than making sure I can look after myself to help others if that is a thought in your mind? Because I'm very aware lots of parents, particularly out there, will be thinking, but I've got to look after my children. They're incredibly important. But if you're not looking after yourself, how can you do that? What advice do you have for people uh, in, in terms of this modern way of working, this more hybrid, detached way of working when you're perhaps not around people all the time? I guess thinking about my own, from my own perspective, boundaries is the first thing that kind of springs to mind. The importance of keeping work separate from home life as you quite rightly say, that's become so blurred over the last few years. I mean, people worked at home before, but that has massively increased because people have seen the benefits of being able to not com combine the commute and try to pick up children and do tasks around the house and generally giving ourselves more time. But what we're tending to notice is rather than giving ourselves more time, work is starting to creep in creep into evenings creep unless you work evenings creeping into weekends and basically your time away from work you find yourself because we majority of us have smartphones nowadays those little pings that you get oh it's just a working email. i'll just quickly read it but how many times does that reading it take you to a place of i might need to action that or i'm constantly thinking about something there so it's just been, I guess, more mindful of when work is taking over and interfering with our personal lives and thinking about how does that impact on how you feel, what you're experiencing. Probably one of the most important things. And I guess then it's how are you feeling from work? Are you getting overwhelmed? Looking at then how that's impacting on your relationships around you how because often and I know we all tend to do this is we take work home with us but if you are at home do you have those sorts of people to have discussions reflective times about some of the work that you're doing with people what's what you're experiencing at work having those opportunities now we're out of the office those have also diminished which can have a huge huge impact on our how self-compassionate we are to ourselves how much we look after ourselves and that well-being as you term it. How can we create this almost this team, this culture of well-being and compassion? That's a very, very challenging thing. I mean, thinking about my own background as a um, clinical psychologist, I've worked across numerous acute um, settings, mental health settings. And one of my roles has often been to help develop a culture a um, sense of well-being and community among the teams that I work in and one of the things we notice when we start to look at compassion 
is that being compassionate to yourself and to your team in today's society and that focus on well-being is incredibly hard I think one thing we have to think about is that particularly in the team sense it can be scary can be tiring it can be frightening to take on board something like that of how do you do that how do you ensure that your team is being effective efficient and also caring and asking people to think about that and think about particularly from a team sense because it's offering you to share more of what you're experiencing and what you're thinking can leave people feeling vulnerable which can often lead to shame which as a psychologist was one of those emotions that we are we want to reduce that shame that people experience but also help people to recognize and sit with that actually it's okay to feel vulnerable at times so it can be really difficult to kind of link that up with teams and kind of think about how do you develop compassion and well-being within these a particular as well because within that you're going to have many people maybe experiencing compassion fatigue burnout all of these factors have a huge impact on well-being so there's something there about thinking about cultures you can't you also can't just go into a team and expect a team to change overnight these things take time these things take a lot of work a lot of thinking through and also has to have quite a lot of staff on board with this which also can be incredibly challenging particularly when people are feeling stretched for time overwhelmed with their work the one thing they don't want to do often is sit down and maybe engage in a reflective practice session or maybe sit and spend some time in supervision because they feel that their 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 roles their use of themselves is best served elsewhere but actually once again it's going back to that um, analogy of the aeroplane oxygen mask we need to put that on ourselves first before we can do that to a team so I guess if we're thinking about how to implement it I think it's not just is it a top-down approach where managers get together and think about what's going on I think you need to incorporate everyone say I'm thinking about the acute wards that I worked on it wasn't just about the managers the psychiatrists it was all the way down to people who were serving meals in housekeeping they actually often had more time and were more kind of susceptible to compassion fatigue and burnout because they were spending more time with quite challenging people so it's about how do we bring everyone together in a place where they feel safe they can allow themselves to be a little bit vulnerable and hopefully gain something from that to increase their well-being increase their self-compassion so I guess it's about bringing everyone together and thinking about what works within your area as different things will work across different places. Is it about having a monthly reflective practice session or a weekly one? Is it about having a time where people maybe just have a break together? Or is it about ensuring that everyone engages in supervision? What would you say then are your top tips for people to take away if they're thinking about embedding this, both maybe for themselves or maybe for their manager, for the teams, just any sort of top tips, advice you you could give to our listeners? I think I'm going to have to do a little bit of a shameless plug because one of the things that I've been working on is a model actually to help teams, individuals think about their well-being and not just kind of on an individual basis but this can be taken within a team and look at a variety of different aspects and think about how these aspects all impact on our well-being and trying to balance them all up 
what do we need more of? What do we need less of? So the model that I've developed, what I've done is taken a variety of aspects such as social and personal, working cultures, client interaction. Um, and then I've looked at that, each of those factors within certain areas such as motivation, safety, threat. And the idea is to think for each of these sectors and what does your team need? What do you need as an individual? Do you need more time looking at safety within client interaction? Is it that there is more assaults, more complaints within that area, or you don't feel confident within that area? Or is it that maybe you need some more motivation to think about your own social and personal? Is there things going on at home that you're bringing into work that you're finding really difficult to separate from. Therefore, you might need a bit more support from colleagues or a manager. The model really helps you to think about the one sounds around each of these. Like, do you feel that you're part of a team or does it feel quite fragmented? Do you feel that you're being heard by those people around you? The model invites people to come and look at that within, I would hope, a safe context. There is always, as I'm very mindful it's a, saying that, it's a, it's a buzzword, but mindfulness, or um, some people prefer to term it as meditation. I think it's about just giving yourself some time to be more in the moment, not thinking about the future, the past, making judgments that then impact on our emotions. It's about being mindful of what you're experiencing. Do I need to take that break? So mindfulness is always a practice that, I encourage my clients who I'm working with, be that people who are seeing me because of mental health difficulties or when I'm delivering reflective practice groups or supervision, mindfulness is always a tool that I really encourage. But I guess there's also something about uh, encouraging people, and I've used this word quite a lot, to be vulnerable, to talk about what's going on for them, some of their difficulties, to share that with others, because the more we keep that within us, it's like having a huge rucksack on your back. And every single one of these problems that you experience is going into that rucksack and it's just building and building and building. And at the end of the day, you are going to, we're going to fall over because we can't carry on managing that, holding that. I also think there's something as well, and I guess this is my final point about hope, holding hope that things might change, things might be different, Yes, but holding hope that you can do your job and that maybe you just need some support right now and that we all need support in difficult times um, when we're not being provided that from other areas. But hope is, I think, one of the most important things. And if you can't hold it for yourself, is there someone around you that can for that time? If people want to know more about yourself, how can they get in touch? Yeah, we have a website. Um, which is www.smallsteps and number two wellbeing.co.uk. We also have an Instagram page which is small steps to wellbeing as well. You can find more details there. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, nice to speak to you. Okay, welcome back. That was this week's guest really discussing there the, the importance of well-being and particularly well-being on yourself. I'm going to use an example now from someone a few months ago that I was working with, and I'm going to edit what she said, and you'll probably understand why. Um, we were talking about well-being at work, and 
and and I, I was just you know asking for examples and what was and she turned around and said my manager doesn't seem to realize what my well-being is about he keeps trying to offer me a fudging cycle to work scheme I don't need that what I need is just to be told I'm doing a good job and that really stuck with me you can see what, what word I've edited out there um, cycle cycle of course yeah yeah um because her point was that ultimately she recognizes, let's be honest, I say this to people all the time. Do you get into this job for the money? And people laugh at you because we because we we know it's a joke, of course, but we do it because we care. We go into this job with our eyes open, knowing that we probably won't get paid as much, but we do it because we care. We feel it would make a difference. And we'd much rather do this than other industries out there, which is great. And I think, there is this, I, I don't know what it is, whether it's a, a, a more senior level or, again, this isn't everyone. I'm talking like generally across the organizations I see is that there seems to be some areas where we feel like we're not giving people the money, the bonuses. So we feel like we should be apologizing and trying to find these alternatives. And we're missing the basics, which for me is just going back and giving people that validation, that affirmation that they're doing a bloody good job during this really difficult time because the same person used the example of certain managers in their team again I'm, I'm trying to be really vague here for a reason as you can imagine and she mentioned a couple of managers that just aren't there on site they're not engaging they're not you know they don't give that human side of it but she used one example and her face changed one guy in the team that's always there for the staff He's always coming in, always telling them to do a good job. It, she also used the example of this guy was having a bad day and he just took it to one side and went, should we just go and get a coffee? Let's go and have a coffee in 10 minutes and just have a, have, have fat, you know, just take some time out. Didn't just work for that individual. The whole effect on the team was huge because they felt that. We talk about vicarious trauma. That was like vicarious positivity. You know, everyone was absorbing it as it flooded out of this relationship because they saw this manager care. And so I think whatever strategy people take from this so if anyone's listening to this that's a line manager or maybe even a senior manager i would always keep coming back to that point how do we tell people how do we show people that we know they're doing a good job whatever strategies you do and again there's nothing i don't want to feel like i'm against cycle to work scheme i, I love the cycle to work scheme i got a blooming good bike out of that once it's more about how that fits in with your ethos. If your ethos is one of, of support and care and belief, and that is just a part of it, fantastic. But if that's the only thing you offer and you don't tell people they're doing a good job because you are caught up in your own chaos. And again, side point here, I just want to say that I recognize that so many people as managers have got so much to deal with, with those high staff turnovers and those other challenges. I don't want this to feel like we're having a go at managers uh, today. It's about recognizing that if you can just spare five minutes to just go to your team and say in some way you're doing a good job, that counts for so much. Yeah, I mean, I've I've worked with industry and companies that have tried different methods to kind of give staff different ways and means of either reward or support. Uh, for example, I've worked at some places that where you could uh, buy or sell up to a certain number of days days leave so you could buy an extra five days or sell them if you routinely didn't use your allocation which that was me at the time i routinely never used my allocation so the extra money came in handy but i'm sorry i've just got an interesting image of you like just uh walking around the corridors with your annual leave days anyone want them 
selling them well, on the side. Well, it, it, it almost come, it almost came to that at one point, but um, <laughs> I, I won't go into too much depth on that. But yeah, it did almost come to that at one point. Um, uh, but obviously, that's not that's not a realistic option in other industries. But there were some things like every another team I was working in every uh, every three months. Uh, it was, I think. Uh, it was a Friday, just after payday, once every three months. We, as a team, would meet up on a Friday. Um, we'd meet up at about nine o'clock, ten past nine, and we'd all go to a cafe over the road just for an hour, just for you know a cup of tea, a little bit of breakfast, whatever it was, just a little bit of decompression before the start of the day, a cup of tea, just have a little chat. And it's it was a brilliant way just to get everyone relaxed, get a bit of harmony in the team. And, you know, as, as you said before, Dave, you know, you you make really good friends with some people at work and other people are just colleagues. But that's a way to enhance that completely. So they may be colleagues, but they're good colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. It brings everyone on side. That's, there we are. That's, that's breakfast reflective practice there. Really good example. So you don't always have to put these formal titles on it, but actually just giving your team that hour to get together, like you said, go and have a bit of breakfast and be human, decompress, check out. It's a Friday, so you're already on that kind of, let's look back on the week and look forward to the weekend. All of that stuff is just a perfect example. So I guess in this last part, what I just want us to think about is the next steps. I, I guess the, the good practice, what we could take away from this. Um, and I'm and dependent on whoever you are, the role that you do, what you know, whoever's listening to this, I guess. I think the bottom line is, is that we can all do something. The opportunity to let people know that they are doing a good job, that they are recognized, that that you see them and you are that they are respected as individuals and as employees. No matter what the individual, that message will go a long way when delivered properly to, to motivate people and to, to, to keep people keep people determined to deliver good good work and good outcomes. We talked about earlier on about working from home, the challenges of that, as in people working far too long, um, people potentially doing you know more hours, not having those breaks feeling lost and and not having that support but let's flip it on its head what's been the advantage do you think for yourself and your colleagues and uh, and other people from this increased working from home i would say and there's an extra level of control um controlling your diary controlling the calls and the the work than the conversations that you have because people have to approach you in a very different manner than just simply coming into an office um the main benefits again that i found um are that when no matter how good a day you're having at the office uh, if you are having one of those admin days where you're you're having to send out email after email work on spreadsheet after spreadsheet work on piece of work after piece of work as you go those tend to be the days when the phone never stops ringing, when the people, the door never stops getting knocked on. There's always something coming up that just need, just needs, oh, can you just do this? Can This just needs a couple of five minutes here. There's always something in those days that just needs doing, and it's always that's it, that scenario. Whereas working from home, you don't have that. You, you don't have the door knocking all the time unless, you know, you particularly lucky and you've ordered quite a lot of stuff and all the deliveries are coming on the same day. 
you, you don't have those different distractions that you would have at work, meaning that you do have more time to get get sat down and focus in a concerted effort and get things done in a much much faster way. One of the, the hopes I have from this working from home is if we come back to this word culture as well, you know, this this culture will just become more normalised and maybe this fear, you know, this fear of, oh, what do you say earlier on? Like the big boss is going to call and I'm going to miss it. Mm. All of that will start to just naturally drop. And what you will see is, I, I, I hate that term as well. Like there's a lot of terms at the minute, like, if you, you know, work smarter, not harder. I think it's, you know, it's, it puts, I, I think sometimes it puts so much pressure on people, you know, oh, I'm not working hard. I'm working smart. What does that mean? And anyway, I, I think it's about understanding that it's, it, there's a level of quality, not quantity. And I think if, you know, if you're doing a good job, give yourself permission to have a nice leisurely lunch, give yourself permission to go and hang the washing out. If you know that you've done a good job and if it hits five o'clock, not feeling guilty because as soon as it hits five, you are turning your laptop off because this whole culture, then if we don't do that, it bleeds into everything else. Cause let's be honest, smartphones, how many people, even if you don't have a work-based smartphone, will still have the ability to go on and check work emails on your smartphone. So much of work is, is easily accessible. We need to fight back and say, look, I do a good job, do a really good job, but this is my time, and this my time is important for my well-being. So my well-being is looked after on an evening and a weekend and on my days off. My well-being will be there in my work environment as well. And so I think it really does come about culture. Yes, we need industries to, to take this forward. Yes, we need senior managers to develop plans. We need operational managers and line managers to, to you know, give that message of doing a good job in a variety of different ways. But we also need the frontline staff to accept that they need to look after themselves, that they must put themselves first, and that it's it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of pulling their weight. Their weight. It's the sign of just looking after themselves. We expect it from the people we work with for them to look after themselves and think about their well-being. Why on earth are we not doing it for ourselves? It's it's often the case that people in these uh, in these roles in these jobs, um, it's almost to the point of cliche. You know the best people to give advice to but the worst for actually following it themselves and sometimes we are our own worst enemies in these situations we are we are and and you know i'm, I'm not saying that uh, all of this is easy because i'm fully aware if i was still in a frontline capacity i would be saying all this and probably still struggling with going into the office tomorrow and probably taking my break or finishing on time i get it i get it these things will creep into our world every once in a while and we will pull the extra hour here we shouldn't or check a work email and we shouldn't i get it it's human but it's trying to be as mindful as possible that we're switching our heads on and we're having that voice in our heads challenging ourselves saying right you are going to go for a walk today you are going to get out the office and go and get some fresh air because you need this and i think the more we talk about it the more we normalize it the more we start to see a difference these difficult times we were in Get that well-being sorted. Think about it. And as you said earlier on, think about how staff are brought in, how we are kind of um, new starters are felt to be part of the team, the cultures. It's normal to take your break here. It's normal to finish on time. How do we like reinforce that with reflective practice, with effective training that really shows that we value them, really thinking about their entire journey? 
it is setting that culture for your new starters, making them realize that this is an industry or this is a workplace that will value you, that will recognize when you've done positive work, that will ensure you have the tools to go with the talent. And the more that is normalized and the more that is just seen as the way, then the better for that workplace and that work environment will be. The better that will be for staff retention, the lower, hopefully, staff sickness rates will be. And then hopefully in the longer term, the more productive the team will be. Even though we've we've covered this subject as, a, I guess, an initial introduction to this, the world of well-being is, is so much bigger than just this one introduction. So I... I, I think i know we will revisit this subject in the future maybe it might even be worth having a full podcast on something like um vicarious trauma to really go in depth about some of the signs and symptoms it has on people so i want people to know that this isn't the end of staff well-being we we really wanted to get this in as one of the early podcasts because we know how important it is for people so please do get in touch via social media uh one twitter at risk and resi or uh, all our contact details are about our website, our email addresses are on the pod feed. Please click on that and get in touch. If you want to be a guest, send us an email. If you want to give us some feedback, your thoughts, uh, if you want it to be anonymized, we will make sure that you are remain anonymous. Uh, but either way, please do get in touch. So I just want to say thank you very much again for listening. Uh, I've been David Gill. And I've been Andrew James. And we'll see you next time on Frontline. Frontline.